Welcome to episode 94 of the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new Star Trek. Today, we're going to look at the premiere of the final season of Star Trek Picard, entitled The Next Generation. I'm the Academy philosophy professor, Rodney Cup, And I'm the Academy media professor, Michael Merrick. You can find us on Twitter, Mastodon, and Facebook, all with the same username, at Trek underscore Academy. Our Tumblr address is Trek Academy without the underscore. And you can look for our distinctive red logo of a Vulcan hand salute filled with stars. Of course, you can listen directly on our website to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Rodney, it's been six weeks since our last podcast. I think that's longer than we've had a break in new Star Trek episodes since season three of Lower Decks started, at least. Yeah, I checked this. I think that's about right. And of course, you know, anybody who loves Star Trek knows that Paramount and CBS has been promoting this very diligently. We've got the new trailer, cast crew introductions. Every day, it seems, new web articles. Yeah. It's just a continuous trickle of content clearly designed to make us excited and build anticipation for this final season of Picard, which some people are calling Star Trek The Next Generation Season 8. Well, and I think it probably worked, this building of anticipation thing. I think it probably worked. It worked in our house, that's for sure. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Well, to set the stage for our conversation today, and if it happens that you're not listening just a few days after the episode premiered, we're going to refresh your memory with a brief episode summary. So if you haven't seen the episode at all, be aware that spoilers do follow. And with that summary, here is Dr. Rodney Cup. All right. Well, as this episode begins, we have Picard and Laris moving house, apparently, to Chow Talk 4, temporarily, maybe permanently, I'm not sure. But Picard's packing is interrupted by the receipt of an encrypted message from Beverly Crusher. And this message is coming to him on his Enterprise D comm badge. None of her old crewmates have heard from her in 20 years. So this is weird. Crusher is aboard a ship inside a nebula hiding from pursuers. She gives Picard a set of coordinates and tells him to trust no one. Now, Riker figures out that she's referring to the Riton system outside Federation space. Riker offers to help Picard find a ship and travel there and implies that Troy and Kestra would maybe appreciate a little time away from him. Well, meanwhile, on Mtalus Prime, Rafi is buying drugs from some Orion dealer and asks him if he's heard anything about some experimental quantum tunneling tech stolen from Daystrom Station that could be used as a weapon. And he tells her that something's going down with the Red Lady. What the heck is the Red Lady? Well, it turns out that Rafi is merely posing as a junkie, thank goodness, in order to gather intelligence for Starfleet. And she discards the drugs that she bought from this Orion dude, but it's, it's kind of a struggle for her, actually. Anyway, aboard what appears to be La Serena, Rafi's superior orders her to find the Red Lady. Eventually she does. As it turns out, it's a red statue of Enterprise C Captain Rachel Garrett. 
outside a large Starfleet facility in District 7, wherever that is. Well, just as she arrives there to warn them of a terrorist attack, she witnesses the building being destroyed, presumably with the stolen tunneling tech. Now, back in what is presumably Earth orbit, Riker's plan is to perform a surprise inspection of the Titan and con its captain into taking them to the border and giving them a shuttle. Well, they're greeted when they board by the first officer, Annika Hansen, otherwise known as Seven of Nine. The Titan's captain, though, refuses to change course for them because Picard's retired, Riker doesn't have a command, and he has orders. Later, Seven demands that they tell her what they are really doing there, and they do. At that moment, while Captain Shaw is in his bed asleep, they drop out of warp at the Wrighton system. Seven is disobeyed orders. Picard and Riker take a shuttle into the nebula. They find Crusher's ship. She's in some kind of medical stasis and someone aboard who claims to be her son finds them and informs them that they have been found just as a massive ship becomes visible to them inside the nebula. And that's the episode. And a big cliffhanger. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So our main podcast mission is to talk about the philosophy and the themes and the moral to the story of the episodes we're talking about. But, but first, we usually do talk about the production of the episode. That includes things related to production design, continuity with past Star Trek, and character development. And I do have to say that there were so many articles out there on the internet about the Easter eggs in this episode we're not going to even try to compile them. We may mention a, a handful in passing. But just note that the second time you watch the episode, it is well worth freeze-framing often to look at all of these little details, often things in the background. So, Rodney, I was kind of expecting that we would get the whole Next Generation band back together in this first mm -hmm. episode. But then again, we have a 10-episode story, and so mm -hmm. it's understandable that it will be paced out and not move too fast right up front. Sure. There has been some criticism of the pacing of other recent Star Trek series seasons as being too slow, too incremental episode to episode. So we can hope that the Picard production team has kind of learned from some of that feedback. Speaking of pacing, Rodney, did it seem to you that it took Picard and Riker a long time to finally get to the Wrighton system for their mm. rescue of Crusher, who had appeared to be in imminent danger? Oh, right. Okay. So we had a lengthy conversation with Laris, drinking in a bar, the manipulation of the Titan's destination. All of that took time, and we don't know if it took hours or even a few days. Did Riker and Picard have the sense of urgency, maybe they should have, for what they perceived as, as a rescue mission. I actually think that Picard was indecisive. I think he waffled back and forth on what the message from Beverly meant and what he should do. It was only Laris who finally got him on the right track. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, I, for me, I guess it didn't really bother me too much. Um, so you've got crushers just outside Federation space. It's going to take them a while to get there and they're having to make this up on the fly. They just don't have the kind of authority they used to. And, and I feel like they, they uh, used the time. Well, they needed to take some time in this episode to kind of set the scene. So for me, I, I felt the pacing was okay. 
even with the Titan being the fastest ever warp capable ship capable of warp 9.99 is a lot faster than 9.9, but it still would have taken them time to get halfway across Federation space, you'd think. For me, the biggest stretch of continuity in this episode is that back in the best of both worlds, while Picard was locutus over on the board ship and everybody was struggling to rescue him, there was a virus in the Enterprise D's navigation system, which Mm -hmm. never, ever got mentioned even once in the best of both worlds. I didn't respond well to that detail. They could have found some other example of when this virus showed up, even when Picard was off the ship, maybe. In some ways, the biggest comment I have on this episode Mm. is the color palette. Ah. And this episode, and my guess is it's going to be the entire season, is extremely dark. Mm -hmm. And most of the scenes have very cool colors, dark blue, dark gray casts to the scenes. I guess the color's okay. It's the 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 darkness though i don't know for me too dark if you ask me i miss the bright colors of strange new worlds i guess which are pretty fresh in my memory still yeah the chateau was dark it's like picard didn't want to turn on any other lights guinan's bar was dark now bars are kind of dark but it was darker than we saw last season yeah i've heard people say that you know you do not want to turn on the lights in a bar yeah, but there was more light last season in the same bar, I think. But District 6, where Raffi is, um, very, very dark. Even on the Titan, you know, like during that first scene with the inspection, mm-hmm. uh, you would think the corridor would be well lighted, but there are way more shadows and things than you would maybe expect. And Shaw's dining room also had lots of, lots of shadows. Now, it makes all of these scenes feel ominous and stressful, which is probably why they're doing it. And particularly when we compare it to the way we are used to seeing these characters in Next Generation, which had very even, flat, bright, relatively bright lighting, because that's what you needed for TV lighting in the day. Yeah, and I've been rewatching The Next Generation with my family uh, recently. And so I know what you're talking about. Is there such a thing as flat dim lighting? Yeah, I kind of feel like that's what we got in this episode. Yeah, maybe it, it may have been in many cases, moderately even, but like, yeah, way, way dark. And it even goes beyond, I mean, you know, when Generations came out, the bridge set was darker, at least mm-hmm. more contrasty than in yeah. the TV series, but this goes way beyond that. And later, after the first time or two, I watched the episode, I cranked the brightness and contrast way up on my TV. And oh, really? I, I thought it was better because I have to turn it back down for everything else I'm going to watch. Do you recall, and I never watched Game of Thrones, but I think I remember people complaining about this sort of thing in the final season of Game of Thrones. Maybe it's just something people are doing now in these series. Yeah, I don't know. As we have talked before, I am not very thrilled with dystopian storytelling, which is how Mm -hmm. I perceived Game of Thrones, regardless of knowing a lot of people really liked it. So I never gave it a try. But I want to talk a little more about visualizations too. I understand that Mike Okuda, who did the ship control graphics for Next Generation and actually several other later Star Trek series, Mm-hmm. was called in to consult on giving the Titan that similar look. I didn't see his name in the, oh. in the closing credits, but at least he consulted. And these displays are often called okudograms. 
Okay. That's what they're called. Okay. The Neo constitution class is clearly intended to at least evoke the ships of Kirk's era, but Starfleet probably decided they didn't want to go back as retro as physical switches and things. So maybe they decided the Okudagrams were retro enough. Uh, As I said, I didn't see his name in the credits, but he has, he has said that he quote worked unquote with the production designers. And that was nice. I, I like that visual interpretation of the control panels. Yeah, I did too. And my question is, you know, does this refit this new class of starship carry any meaning in the series, hopefully, besides just plain old fan service? That's what I'm going to be wondering about in these coming episodes. I mean, hypothetically, you could have sent Riker and Picard to a modern version of, you know, the USS Enterprise, whatever PDQR might might be. Um, and they chose not to do that, um, mm-hmm. maybe because of the connection to Riker, the more personal connection. But, you know, this this whole season is drawing on nostalgia and the decision to, to evoke the original NCC-1701 from Kirk's era or even from Captain Pike's era. I think primarily that's a call. The, the appearance and the name is a call on nostalgia for fans. So in a way, like you said, it's fan service. Hmm. Rodney, speaking of ships, it made me stumble a bit to see Rafi on La Serena. And you kind of alluded me to too. that in your summary. Because last time we saw La Serena, it was when Gerardi Borg, as the queen, flew off to the Beta Quadrant in it. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if somehow when Gerardi came back hundreds of years later, she said, here's your ship back. But then I remembered that that was the alternate universe version of La Serena. And Seven had taken over the prime universe version of La Serena and brought it to where where last season's huge spatial anomaly was found. That was probably just sitting there, either floating off in space or sitting in a hangar bay. And there was in this episode a really quick scene in which we see the exterior of the ship from the side. And it indeed does have the red of the prime universe, La Serena, as we saw it in season one. Season two's version of the ship was kind of a gunmetal gray that didn't have those nice red colors on it. That's nice attention to detail there, Michael. Very, very well done. The exterior view of it didn't stand out like it maybe should have. Again, it was about the third time I watched the episode that I said, oh, those (laughs) things there, that's the, the pointy things in the front of La Serena. It's more about the background scenes. We kind of knew it from the trailers, but this ship is Beverly's long-term home, and she has a lot of her memorabilia there. And as that initial pan inside the ship starts, uh, a Picard log entry from the Best of Both Worlds is playing as the camera pans. And that suggests that Beverly had already been planning to signal Picard before that final attack happens. You know, I was wondering about this, Michael. Uh, I, you know... Was she missing him? I was wondering. I mean, she's basically playing this mixtape Picard had given <laughs> yeah. her, right? He called it uh-huh. a compilation of classics I created for Beverly in lieu of wine and roses. So I was just kind of wondering about that myself. And when he finally got on board the ship, he recognized that it was that mixtape from mm-hmm. hearing just one song playing. Yeah. yeah. There's a huge amount of detail in the end credits also. And remember this time, what would usually be the opening credits are at the end and there's just the quick bump at the beginning, but mostly those end credits 
pan the various ocudograms. Uh, there are images of DNA. Uh, there is uh, a display of a holodeck program with the 10 forward lounge with safety protocol disengaged. There are mentions of the USS Constance lost at star date 44002.3, which would be the Battle of Wolf 359. There's a guide to the, to the Fleet Museum that Jordy apparently runs showing locations of Janeway's Voyager, the Enterprise A, Sulu's Excelsior, and a ship called the USS Pioneer. There's a display of what might be that quantum tunneling weapon or, or the effect that it would produce. And there are musical notes, and it took me a while to figure out what the musical notes are. The musical notes are Pop Goes the Weasel. Oh. <laughs> which remember data okay. attempted to whistle an encounter at Farpoint. Now these might oh. just be Okudagrams, but in the past we've seen elements in the credits of the various recent Star Trek series that then appeared in the action of the episode. So I think That's those right, are yeah. some things to watch. Great, great point. Yes. Now, before we get to the philosophy and messages, there are a few other quick takes. And I have to say this first one isn't quite as quick as the others, but there's a lot of talk about 20 years having passed. Now, last time we saw the next generation crew together in Nemesis, it was in 2379, or that would be 23 years before Picard season three. So that's, that's the about 20 years estimate. Uh, All Good Things, the next generation series finale would have been 32 years ago as our people in season three uh, count time. Now, this is assuming that Picard season three takes place in 2402, which would be the year after season two. Here's where the math gets even more complicated because calendars are weird. 2402 minus the 50 years recognized at Frontier Day mm-hmm. is 2152. Okay. okay. The NX-01 Enterprise was launched in 2151. Right. But because calendars are kind of weird, completion of the 250th year of something that happened on a date in 2151, completion would be 2402 because 2401 would be the beginning of the 250th year. Right, right. So they're not commemorating 250 years from the launch of the NX-01, which is really the first ship that went out far from Earth to explore, Mm -hmm. it would be recognizing the completion of 250 years because math is hard and calendars are even harder to figure out. Okay. Beverly had more action in this episode than maybe all of her previous action scenes put together. The first gun battle was about a minute and a half long, which is pretty long for TV, even for an action sequence. Yeah. That amount of time makes a statement about her. I think uh, that she is a little bit different person at, that, that we're used to now. You know, for me, this wasn't too much of a stretch because I do remember an episode of The Next Generation, which she was in the captain's chair, right? So I could picture her doing this. I mean, she's had some leadership roles. I don't know that she very often was flying phaser rifles. At other <laughs> no, I guess not. But speaking of phaser rifles, did it seem strange to you that a phaser rifle would shout out to the enemy that power cell depleted. Right. And I thought it was kind of odd that she had to charge it like it was a pump action shotgun. Did you notice that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that that is the portrayal of the the action sequence. But still, do you tell the enemy that you're, that you don't have no more ammunition or do you leave a little room to fake them out? 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't want that announced to my enemy. Riker referred to going boldly. And that's an in-joke because ever since 1966, people have complained that to boldly go is a split infinitive and it's bad grammar. If you wrote that today, Grammarly or even just Microsoft Word would correct you saying that's that's not right. I'm just thinking in in this series, they're going oldly, aren't they? It is nostalgia. Yes. As we usually do in Star Trek when introducing a new ship, in this case, the USS Titan, we get actually more than one very nice fly around scene. It's not quite as extensive as the one in Star Trek, the motion picture, but they are clearly introducing what will be the hero ship of this season by all of these exterior visuals. Yeah. And this standard Star Trek, maybe a little cliche at this point, and, and it's a nice looking ship. I mean, no doubt about it, but uh, thankfully, you know, they didn't stretch this out to five minutes, right? Like in the motion picture. So thankfully it was yeah. brief. In the motion picture, it was because fans have been waiting for not just mm-hmm. a month and a half. They've been yeah. waiting for a decade. But in filmmaking, television and movie filmmaking, there's this thing called the establishing shot. Right, right. Our colleague at our college that teaches film teaches that establishing shot. You first use some kind of exterior shot to establish where you are. And then you Mm -hmm. can click to the inside pictures of people talking. But in pretty much all the TV shows you watch, when the scene is moving to a new location, you will see some kind of outside shot to have you click on where it is. You know, it might be, you know, an aerial shot of all of Manhattan for one of the one of the shows based in New York. Or it might be, if it's a police show, it might be an outside picture of the precinct house. Or it might be an outside shot of where one of the characters lives, if that's where the scene is going to be. Usually it's very short, no more than, than a few seconds. But mm-hmm. so that's what they're doing here, the establishing shot, you know, knowing where you are, and yes, getting to know the ship that's going to have the most prominence during this season. The reason they have to point out that the Titan is a refit is that we saw the USS Titan in Lower Decks, and it wasn't this ship. That's right. The saucer and the secondary hull are more or less similar in the refitted Titan to what we saw in Lower Decks. So that you can see as, as just a refit. In Lower Decks, the nacelles were at downward angles, and in Picard, they're at an angle upward, which again is to evoke the original Constitution class design. But note that as far as the Starfleet designers were concerned, they would have been evoking the Constitution class of Strange New Worlds, in which the Enterprise was reimagined a little bit from the 1966 version of the ship. The Strange New Worlds Enterprise is just not quite as tall top to bottom. The saucer and the engineering hull are closer together. The yeah. nacelles don't go up quite as much. It's, it's just not as, not as tall. So that would be kind of the inspiration here. Hey, Michael, I'd like to talk a little bit about the season three music. So the music in this episode was written by Stephen Barton instead of Jeff Russo, who wrote the music for the first two seasons. And to me, Barton's score was, is like a greatest hits album. I mean, it's, you know, we hear a lot of familiar themes. It's a bit overdone in my opinion, and it kind of feels like fan service. I mean, it, it's true that they're getting this band back together, right? But I just feel like season three, like the series itself, should have its own identity and a unique musical theme like Russo's. 
would help with that. I mean, that is the Picard theme. So this left me a, a little puzzled, I guess. You're right. And one perfect example is the closing credits I talked about yes. with all the Akutograms. At least the right. first section of that was the theme from Star Trek First Contract. Right. And it's beautiful. I love Jerry Goldsmith, but it's not Picard. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I have to say, speaking of music, that I wasn't all that thrilled about the early 20th century music that we hear oh. both at the Chateau and on the Ilios. Mm hmm. Why is Beverly playing it as her ship is threatened or does her son like it? And it's really him that's playing it as the ship is threatened. Mm. We know from last season that Picard does sort of have an appreciation of 400 year old music that he inherited from his mother. But why is Picard playing it at the Chateau? I suppose it's, uh, it's intended to be thematic to have both of these people playing 400 year old music at the same time in different places and it kind of shows a connection between them or a, a pending connection. I, so I suppose it's done for a thematic reason, but it still doesn't quite fit that much with Star Trek in my mind. You know, I hadn't thought about that. I do have my own partial answer to this, Michael. The song that Picard is hearing when he hears the combat chirp, I think that song, I found the lyrics, I'll read them to you. It talks about what Laris is probably feeling now that Picard is leaving once more to go on another adventure, right? So here's the lyrics. I can't stop praying you'll come back home. Can't understand why you left me all alone. This pain inside my heart is tearing me apart because my beautiful bird has flown. That expresses what Laris is, is feeling. And then, of course, you get that thunderstorm outside the chateau, right? Suggesting turbulence ahead. And, you know, I kind of wish that Picard had taken Laris with him. I just like her character, maybe. What do, you, what do you think about that, Michael? I think she could have contributed to the mission, yes. Yeah. And, you know, as you were speaking, reading those lyrics, we only have hints about it, but we have the, the impression that Troy and Kestra are unhappy with Will Riker. Yes. Maybe because he trots off all the time to go do Starfleet things. So maybe... Mm -hmm. Maybe that same meeting applies to oh, right. the, uh, the Riker-Troy family. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and talk about meaning at this point? And here we're going to discuss what messages the writers and the producers may have wanted to convey to the audience in this episode. So what do you think, Michael? Well, when Star Trek uses season-long story arcs, the big message of the season isn't always clear early on. Um, I think uh, right. Discovery season one, where it was really the final episode that they hit us with the strong message. Right. And the audience has to recognize and understand this. Um, we can't make any snap judgments at this point about what this season means. You got to be patient. Because this is not episodic. It's, a, it's an extended series, almost like a really, really long movie that it's a exactly. single story as we go through. Uh, but I think that this episode is certainly about loyalty and family. I agree. And particularly a found family that was forged, well, 30 years ago or more in a lot of ways on the Enterprise D. Mm -hmm. Picard didn't galvanize into action right away, but he and Riker did get to the point of taking some pretty big risks out of loyalty to this found family. 
Seven had been through a lot with Picard recently and joined in and didn't really need much persuasion. And this idea of a found family has been a theme that's common in a lot of recent Star Trek. The fact that Picard, to begin with, is ambivalent of, of two minds about what he should do, about replying to the call for help. I think that is part of the lesson, but still, I'm not exactly sure what that lesson is. Is it to just simply stay in touch with your found family? And how often have some of us been really close to people like at a job, and then when we change jobs and we move away, we kind of lose contact with them? Is it stay in touch with your found family? Or is that it shouldn't matter how long you've been out of touch when the need arises. Yeah. I like what you're saying about a found family. I'm, I'm thinking about discovery, especially, you know, Culber's and Stamets's found family aboard that ship. I, I do have a take on this, uh, maybe a different emphasis than what you're giving it. I think the theme here is about managing conflicting loyalties. And my thoughts here, you know, Picard leaves Laris to help Crusher. Right, Riker leaves Troy to help Picard. We have seven disobeying Shaw's orders to help Picard and Riker. In all of these situations, we have a conflict in loyalties. And I, I think this is, well, it's, it's quite obvious this is a difficult ethical question. You know, how, how do you manage these things? And the episode, I don't think it offers any answers, and we're probably not going to get any for a while, right? Maybe a related question is once you've given your loyalty, how far does it go? Or or can you take it back? And I think Good point. It, it would be a rabbit hole to go into, but if you look through much of 20th century history and even so far in the 21st century, there have been a lot of cases of someone who has pledged loyalty to a leader and later regretted mm-hmm. it, but didn't feel yeah. that that loyalty could be withdrawn, even though it probably should have been. So, mm-hmm. so uh, again, the ethical questions we will see play out through the season and I trust we will get more clarity as we go along. Yeah. Seven's angst about serving in Starfleet. I think there are lessons here Mm -hmm. too. She says she wants to trust her instincts about justice, but she's just stuck following orders. (laughs) Now we often get leadership lessons in Star Trek. And I think this is one of them. Again, how it plays out, we will see. But the problem is Starfleet and any military organization is not about being a cowboy. In a military organization, you have your job or a staff position, something like that, and you stay in your lane. There are things in your lane that you can do on your own discretion. You maybe keep your superiors in the loop for, for situational awareness, but that you can essentially do and take care of. But anytime something unusual comes up, or if you have an idea about something that goes outside your lane, you coordinate your recommendations. You don't just bull ahead. Mm-hmm. And Seven has always been a cowboy. Since her time on Voyager, she thought she had all the answers. And so it's understandable that she's uncomfortable with the chain of command culture of Starfleet. And I think she probably is pretty new at being a Starfleet officer. On the Titan, I'm assuming that she is new since the refit. You know, Captain Shaw talked about five years, and I assume that that was before the refit. So she's probably pretty new, and she has not yet internalized being in her lane, staying in her lane, and accepting that sometimes decisions are made at a higher pay grade that we don't like, but we just need to say yes, sir, and move on. 
And that's that seven, but that happens so often in job settings and things like that, that uh, yeah, I wish the decision had been different. I hope that they listened to me, but they decided a different way and I just have to live with it. All of us have heard from a, a friend at some point complaining that their boss is an idiot, right? Or whatever, <laughs> right? But um, it, yeah, seven here reminded me of Beckett Mariner. <laughs> Right, she's having the same kinds of issues I think Mariner has with superior officers and protocol. She tells Picard and Riker that she was able to bring justice and to an unjust universe when she was a ranger, and now she has to ignore her instincts and just follow her captain's orders and let him treat her badly. I mean, this guy's a jerk. Yeah, and so let's talk about him a little bit. Fundamentally, he appears so far to be a terrible captain. He's engaging in dominance games with Picard and Riker, inviting them to dinner and then starting without them. And all of his little nasty comments about mm-hmm. crashing ships intentionally or not. Yeah. Cause they did both of those things, mm-hmm. you know, the enterprise D crashed and they crashed the enterprise E into Shinzon's oh, right. uh, yeah. big, uh, big nasty ship. And he has no clue what's going on in his ship. Even after he tells Seven that she has ended her career in Starfleet, what does he do? He asks her for a report, leaves the bridge, and leaves her in command. <laughs> you know, he, he mentions commanding Titan for five years and 36 missions. Uh, again, I, th- I think that that was probably before the refit. He's probably been dirt side for several months during the refit. And he may redeem himself going forward. I hope that he is a more complex character than what we saw in episode one. Right. Maybe not. I mean, I I was surprised by the disrespect he showed Picard and Riker. And and maybe contempt is a better word, actually. And I don't know. He might just end up dead. He kind of reminded me of that obnoxious Lieutenant Evan Connolly in the season two premiere of Discovery. You remember him? getting killed by an asteroid on the way to the Hiawatha. Yeah. I don't know. I I kind of feel like he's going to (laughs) die. I always like it when characters are complex. And and often I say that about the bad guys, the the villains. Someone who is a cardboard cutout of a villain is nowhere near as interesting as... Yeah, I agree. Khan, for example, his hate for Kirk had to do with what happened to his people and particularly to his wife. There is nuance, there's complexity there that you can understand, even if you think you shouldn't have looked for revenge that way. Another category of meaning that we see in this episode is, and and I'm guessing for the whole season, is the strong roles of female characters in the Mm -hmm. episode. Of course, Crusher is a badass in the opening battle, protecting her ship and her son. As I said earlier, it's not the kind of role we've largely seen her in, but we can understand that 20 or more years on her own, apparently as some kind of private medical agency has changed her and in many ways given her more strength. Right after receiving Beverly's message, as we said, Picard doesn't really know how to respond. And he really kind of comes across as weak in those scenes. Patrick Stewart has said that Picard is mad at Beverly for ghosting everyone. And, oh. and Picard just isn't sure if he even wants to respond Laris is the linchpin, even though she may not be in much of the rest of the season. She's the strong character who clarifies the situation for Picard and gets him going. Um, Still, he doesn't really charge off. He needs help from Riker 
figure out what to do. But again, Alaris's role, even if she's effectively a guest star here, is really strong in triggering the action of the episode. Mm-hmm. There's Raffi, who is working undercover, a long-term undercover, pretending to be an addict uh, that she's actually been in the past. That's got to require a lot of strength. And we saw her yeah. struggle, but we saw her uh, resisting dr- temptation. Drop the drugs. Yeah. So we see it on the planet. We see it as she rushes off to try to save people's lives. And of course, Seven of Nine has always been strong, self-assured, high standards for herself and others. We've already talked about her role, but taking the stand she did out of loyalty is certainly a strong, a bold move from a strong character. And it's not just strong female characters. It's the balance of female characters. If you don't count the characters who had brief appearances, we have the four primary female characters we just talked about balanced against Picard and Riker. I can't help remember that Marina Sirtis has said that way back in the first season of Next Generation, she was about to lose her job partway through the season because someone at the studio decided there were too many female characters. And it was only the fact that Denise Crosby decided to leave that allowed Marina Sirtis to keep her role and gave us the seven seasons of Deanna Troy. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Before that, they basically had three women and what would have been five male regular cast members, including Data. Now, they had a pretty decent number of guest stars and extras who were women, that's true, but still the, the main cast. So part of this prominence of female characters in Picard and the other modern Star Trek series is just that it is Star Trek. But I think it's also movement of society and the film and television industry since the 1960s also. And thank goodness, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, maybe it's time for some final thoughts here. Do you have anything running through your head there, Michael? Taking a step back and a little bit bigger picture, there's been a lot of talk about Picard and Riker being the Butch and Sundance of this season. That's a reference to the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969, a Western that really was a quintessential Western, but also a quintessential buddy film. McCart and Riker have an important mission, but they're also enjoying it a lot. They kind of make fun of that even. In many ways, it's not only that they're equals now. Going back to Nepenthe in season one, it's like Riker is the mentor now helping Picard figure out how to succeed, which is usually kind of the role of the captain, helping subordinates succeed. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to Riker taking direction from Picard, which is what Seven complained about. Yeah, this was in a a way a kind of a buddy episode. And, you know, now that you're talking, I I think it's good that that they are doing this, you know. Picard is elderly. Let's not pretend that it's 30 years ago. He's going to make all the decisions and everything. I mean, he's going to lean on his friends now. And, and that's, that's good. And uh, Patrick Stewart has said that one of the things that appealed to him, or maybe the most persuasive thing that appealed to him about coming back to his Picard character was to admit that 20 or 30 years have passed and that the mm-hmm. characters are different just yeah. like the actors are different. So, and we've seen some of that in previous seasons of Picard, where Picard essentially made a misstep or said the wrong thing oh, right. and yeah. that. And, uh, and so, so they're, they're continuing that here. There are some who are going to see this episode just bluntly as a remake of the Wrath of Khan. 
And there are a lot of elements that seem familiar if you think about it. An admiral mm -hmm. gets a distressed call from an estranged former flame, diverts a ship from a routine right. cruise, and when he gets there, is attacked by a big bad. Uh, okay, I see it now. now. There are some reviewers out there that have seen like six episodes of the season. You and I have not. Right. So we're no. really only speculating. Uh, but it appears that this big bad, Vedic, has a grudge from, well, maybe 20 years ago, like Khan had a grudge from 20 years ago. And also, like the Wrath of Khan, when the hero gets there, he unexpectedly encounters, well, somebody's son, like Kirk encountered his son. Mm -hmm. It's a vibe and maybe even an inspiration, but it's really different from like J.J. Abrams just redoing the Khan story in his parallel universe. So was there inspiration? Was there an intent to parallel or did it just kind of work out that way? I wonder. I am concerned that Star Trek not rehash old stories and, and tell some new ones. But going back to this parallel that I didn't see before, you'll remember in, you know, in Wrath of Khan, Kirk ended up in the captain's chair. By analogy, you know, if that happens here, Shaw is not going to survive and Picard's <laughs> going to end up in that chair, right? We will see. We will see about that. Picard or, or Riker, yeah. There are a lot of unanswered questions in this episode. Uh, as you'd expect from episode one of 10, the elephant in the room is Beverly's just revealed son. Are we going to yeah. find out that Picard is his father? A lot of people seem to be expecting that. Picard gave Beverly a mixtape after all. They didn't mm -hmm. say that in the episode, but that's what it was yeah. back from the days of cassette tapes. But remember that Next Generation already had an episode about Picard having a son he didn't know about. Mm -hmm turned out that that wasn't true and they did DNA tests and things like that. But so that is something that we've touched on before. It's nice to know that Beverly Crusher is a fan of the X-Files <laughs> using Fox Mulder's catch line, trust no one. Mm -hmm. But in this case, why can't Starfleet be trusted? Right. And, and I am worried that we're going to get a story arc here about evil people in Starfleet you know, we've seen a lot of that lately enough, maybe too much as far as I'm concerned, just to mention a few, we had Commodore O in season one of this series. And, you know, in the third season of Lower Decks, which just happened, we had Admiral Buenamigo, right? Yeah. And, and we've seen it many times in the past too. Way too many conspiracies among the Admiralty over many, many years. Other uh, questions that are still there. The guy overhearing Picard and Riker in the bar. Was that how the bad guys tracked them to, to the Ilios? And, th and that's a possibility oh. because they said they, they, they followed you here. Or is that a signal of something more later? Yeah, I noticed that, Michael. Uh, didn't mention it, but who knows at this point? <laughs> it's just right? one of these plot threads we don't want to completely forget about. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, often in an extended story like that, they'll plant a seed, yeah. and then two or three or four episodes later, it'll come back. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's that. When Beverly phasered the invaders, they left an ash residue, which was not familiar to the Starfleet folks. What's that about? Uh, that I, I'm sure that's going to come back to us. How about Raffi's handler? I, I mean, we're hearing an AI voice. I think that's pretty clear, but there was text on the screen. So I think this AI voice is 
translating text into what Rafi can understand. So I, I'm assuming we're not hearing the original voice. The text appears to be a mishmash of different alien language fonts. So I'm assuming that that's kind of part of an encryption system. Who is the handler? Is it Empress Giorgio, who remember was sent back in time to a point that hasn't been revealed yet for her promised new role with section oh, 31? Right. Uh, I've seen online speculation that it is Moriarty or even Lore, who we both know from trailers are gonna be in this season. Mm -hmm. I was immediately suspicious of this handler. And that's probably what the writers intended, right? So Sure, yeah. What's the deal with Riker saying that Deanna and Kestra would appreciate him being gone for a while? There appear to be family stresses there. What's the deal? And it wouldn't surprise me if it's Will running off to Starfleet so often. Now, in this episode, I think he was invited to come make a speech. So that may be a oh, little right. bit different from going on a mission which it turned into going on a mission, <laughs> but, but what are the stresses there? And we know that Deanna at least is going to appear in later episodes and, and we will find that out. I trust. Yeah. At the end of this episode, I believe we're shown scenes from future episodes. And I think I saw one in which Troy was complaining to Riker about his leaving home to help Picard. So yeah, trouble in paradise, apparently, Maybe it's like uh, Picard in season one. Riker just wants to go back out into the cold. As Picard's doctor put it, maybe now more than ever, right? Yeah. And we know from the publicity and previews that the overarching villain of this season is this woman named Vadik. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I can't remember if I've heard it in audio. But she apparently has some kind of vendetta against Picard. And we don't know why. I have a theory. I'm oh, not sure if it's okay. quite a prediction, but I have a theory pending learning more like next episode. And it goes back to those end credits showing the Okudagram referencing the USS Carolina, which remember the text on the screen shows it was apparently lost at Wolf 359, mm -hmm. which would have been when Picard was Locutus. Mm. Maybe Vatic lost someone there and that is her trigger. It doesn't explain why Starfleet can't be trusted. So there's more complexity there. But at least for now, until we learn more future episodes, that's my theory about the big bad of this season. Well, you know, maybe we're being prepped for that by Captain Shaw, you know, talking about Picard's being locutus, calling him ex-Borg. And, you know, I remember a certain... A space station commander being really upset at Picard slash Locutus at Wolf 359, Cisco. Yeah. I, I like your theory. Yeah. Well, I guess that does it for this week. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this podcast. We're going to be back next week to look at the next episode of Picard entitled Disengage. Now, remember that we post podcast updates on Twitter, Mastodon, and Facebook at Trek underscore Academy and at Tumblr at Trek Academy without the underscore. And you can always check our website at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the Star Trek Academy podcast. <laughs>